What is good food? This series will crack open that massive question and put it back together again using anthropology, geography, history, politics, economics and other delicious disciplines. Have your ears caressed and your taste buds tingled for the next 20 minutes. Today in the studio we have Francesca Vaghi, a PhD student in anthropology, affiliated to SOAS and Thomas Coram Research Unit at UCL's Institute of Education. Her PhD is on children's food practices in childcare and at home, and her research covers a variety of areas. Broadly, medical anthropology, the anthropology of food, childhood studies, gender, and class and ethnicity in the UK. With Francesca is Meruj Tak, who has recently submitted her PhD thesis in development economics, also at SOAS. Her research focuses on the nexus between agriculture, food and nutrition. Since submitting her PhD thesis, Merouche has been working as a consultant in international development at Oxford Policy Management, where she evaluates nutrition and food policies in low and middle income countries. All our presenters in this series will be looking at the question, what is good food? Well, good morning. It's a beautiful winter day um, and I'm here with Marouche. I'm Francesca. Uh, Marouche, congratulations on recently submitting your PhD. It's good to know there's someone out there who's on the other side already. <laughs> Thank you, Fran. Uh, yeah, I, it's brilliant. Now that I've finished my PhD, I can sleep again. <laughs> <laughs> I look forward to that day. Uh, so this morning we are talking as the other guests on this series about what is good food. And um, inspired by this very broad question, uh, today we will focus on the issues of nutrition and health as consumers increasingly rely on industrialized food markets. So in this episode, we will uh, bring together two very uh, different perspectives and unusual uh, to have an economist and an anthropologist <laughs> in conversation with each other. And uh, from our different points of views and uh, disciplines, we will explore how this shift in consumption patterns has impacted people's lives. Uh, Merouche focuses on the macro level agriculture and food security policies in low and middle income countries uh, in deciding what good food is and its impact on nutrition status of countries. Whilst on the other hand, uh, I will draw from recently completed ethnographic work and I will try to talk about a bit about this growing concern for childhood obesity rates and recent developments in English children's food policy and the way that these have moral implications in the lives of children, parents, and early years practitioners. So I look forward to this discussion. Uh, Marouche, can you tell us a bit more than in your research and um, in, your, in your point of view, perhaps, what good food is? Um, so because I'm an economist, I'm gonna try and refrain from doing what economists do, which is to tell what people, I mean, at least in food and nutrition, what people should be eating or should not be eating. I think we leave that job for the nutritionist and also to people to decide uh, what they should or should not be eating. Um, but yes, I think when it comes to macro level agriculture and food policy, uh, there is a lot, a lot depends upon what data we've collected over time and how we, with the, the patterns of consumption we see in, in the data. So I've been really lucky to actually look at the Indian household food, uh, household consumption surveys, which also has a food module, which asks um, households how much 
of food they bought and what what they're eating in a thirty day period. Um, and based on that, um, I've I basically looked at how patterns of consumption in India changed from nineteen ninety to two thousand eleven twelve. And we found some really interesting things there. Um, I'll come to that in a bit, but just to focus more on what good food is, um, we um, I think a lot of the food and agriculture policies that governments and national governments, and but also international bodies have been kind of uh, um, projecting on agriculture policies it has defined what food people have been consuming. Mm which leads to then kind of you know having these nudge, national level nudges essentially the governments are have been uh, projecting on the population in terms of what they can eat by either by price signals or what is available in the market for people to eat so um yeah broadly i think uh, the good food bit i'm going to refrain from that but i mm. know that like how simple agriculture policies or food security policies have defined what good good food could be for uh, people in low and middle income countries uh, specifically the people who are on the bottom of the pyramid mm. um, and under poverty line mm. and i remember we spoke a little bit about this kind of increased um, industrialization of food was your um were the data you were looking at also including this and and how does then the policy side of it relate to that as well yeah um uh, so uh, i hope like in today's conversation i can tease out those connections between mm. the macro level economic policy food and food economic policies and then uh link that to what people actually consume there there's a lot that goes on in the middle but there is a, a connection um So simply so for example a simple way of looking at thinking about this would be the the food subsidies that the governments provide and uh what which crops the food subsidies are provided for mm. in most developing countries what happens is the focus has been on staple f- food grains so maize wheat and rice and which is brilliant because the problem of hunger has been we've been trying to solve it for a while and we made great progress gro- globally however what that has also done is the neglect of other food crops uh, um have has also happened so maybe for example fruits and vegetables there's not much subsidies provided on those food crops which are essential for micronutrient deficiencies or hidden hunger as uh, we call it in layman's term um so yeah uh, so this this is how the government's choosing what food we mm. should be eating essentially defines what people actually end up eating in the end so very little f- uh, fruit very little vegetables and obviously uh, high so- sources of uh, protein such as dairy and meat are um, you know come way after uh, after f- grains and staples yes Yeah. Um why don't you talk us through what your research is because I think there are a lot of interlinkages in terms of what government policies yeah. uh have been doing both uh, in in say in the UK and developed countries which are quite similar to actually low and middle income countries. Yes. Well actually to echo a bit what you've just been saying uh just this idea that there is a straightforward definition of what good food is we should just leave that outside the door and it's so provocative that we are invited to talk about this in the series right because it is it is so contentious um so i think uh towards the end of of your um of your description of your research now you kind of pointed out this contradiction that happens sometimes at policy level and then what happens at consumer level and that's also something that i've been looking at so um I think um 
in, in, in the context that I was doing research in, it was really interesting for me to see how families are constantly exposed to market pressures that present them with um, all these messages that are linked also to, to public health policy, for instance, the five a day. Um, but then a lot of the food that gets marketed uh, as healthy or including these, these nut nutrition messages, public health messages are actually not quote unquote good. Um, so anyway, that's one aspect of what I'm looking at. But to take it a step back, um, uh, my research was very micro <laughs> in comparison to yours. So I spent a year working at a state maintained nursery here in London. And um, I was on the one hand on a very, very um, kind of um, small scale level looking at how children interact with each other and create uh, self and peer identities through food and eating practices. So that was kind of the starting point of my research. And then as I started um, uh, progressing with my fieldwork, I realized that the problem or, well, not the problem, but the the context uh, within which this, this micro um, micro reality was unfolding uh, was much more to do with policy and how children's food policy links uh, to family policy. Some some of the discourses of which have been going on for many years here in the UK. So um, ultimately, I'm, I'm also looking at how um, food and parenting good food and good parenting both in quotes um, inverted commas are are used to to promote um, what I think is a white middle class model of family and and nutrition which uh, unfortunately often is not achievable to the to, for the people to whom these messages are promoted so this is kind of what I'm I'm looking at um, and um, uh, so yes, I, I I argue that this idea of good food is inherently moral, um, and um, and and it's it's interesting as well that um, children who are meant to be the the people to to whom the policies are doing good seem to be ignored a bit in the in the discourse in the policy discourse. So I I talk a bit about that as well, um, and and. Furthermore, <laughs> that um, I was quite surprised that women still carry a lot of the burden of um, of doing the food work at home, and uh, and I was quite surprised by that. Um, so I think now we can move on to to talking a bit about why we think our research is important. You talked about very nicely about the different ways how how food policies are linked not just to family planning but also the role of women in the household and that's very important for food and agriculture in in mm. many developing countries because the burden of production actually lies in the hands of the women, female agriculture farmers uh, but while the decision making on who what what crop to produce generally lies in the hands of the male I see. Um, of um, men of the household. Um, there's a very interesting study done in the 90s by IFPRI, the International Food Policy Research Institute, uh, where they found that even though majority of the farmers are actually women, when um, when food because of the crop that has been cultivated when, when, they, when it goes from subsistence to commercial farming, may, men take 
over the mm. decision making so the moment the food is whilst the food is being grown to eat within consume within the household women are the, in charge and they're the ones who do the manual labor but as soon as women move into commercial farming or because of the state support or because of some they start growing more food men will enter the ent- enter the production um there so it's quite interesting how these intra household dynamics work not just in terms of consumption but also in like when production and cultivation decisions are made um so just to go back to a little bit to why this research is the research that I was conducting was important in terms of to understand what good food really is um as we as you said previously how contentious this question of what good food really is um and um Uh, unknowingly or knowingly macroeconomists or people who decide food and agriculture policy decide what good food essentially is because they choose specific crops uh, that should uh, receive inputs and subsidies at at the national level um, both in developed and developing countries um the re- a part of my research as i said looked at what pe- indian population was consuming over a period of, period of time and that kind of explains uh how what a what the demand is but also b how um supply policies have influenced our consumption um but also the other part of my research looked at how um government uh investments in infrastructure in rural infrastructure and public capital influenced um consumption patterns or like dietary diversity to be more precise in india um and why it is important to understand what good food is is because we once un, like even if you're not specifically answering the question of what good food is we, as i said we are deciding what good food is and what people should essentially be eating and that influences how what their nutrition status or their health status is going to be like um and also uh, i think a lot of focus in in like in development uh, research or international development recently has been on going back to the keynesian way of thinking mm. which is like the government should start again mm. investing in rural infrastructure and public capital if not governments then the private sector we need a buy in from the private sector uh and therefore it's quite it's quite important to then understand what the rate of ret- so in economist terms what the mm. rate of return on these investments is to make a case for a uh, higher increase in in, in 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 investments in in these public capitals in in rural areas so for example like education or irrigation um agriculture r&d research and development sorry um and then also road infrastructure etc so very basic old school economic ideas of like investing in like infrastructure uh which then promotes a rural economy uh and the markets that w- work in there and therefore will go on to increase in- not just income but also production of like these diverse foods and from there you go on to consuming better foods and there are very different mechanisms that go into it so but that's just a very short um description of um why this kind of research is important yeah. to understand what good food is um how that, about you what about the micro level that's yeah i um i think one of the things i would quite like to to link i guess to to what you've just said and what you were saying earlier as well i i find this idea that you know it's it's kind of the big institutions and the state that end up uh, having such an impact on ultimately what consumers have uh, on a daily basis and i think what i find quite uh 
quite important and central to my research actually is this this idea of challenging that um that choices are are the ultimate if not the most important determinant of health certainly here there is a lot of emphasis on that on 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 placing um individual accountability as 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 a main factor for uh, for instance obesity which is some something that i that i look into right um but uh, as I said at the beginning, I just think it's very important to, because if, if, if we do start thinking more about food as this kind of moral, moral entity um, in our everyday lives, then it becomes a lot harder to make, uh, uh, or not harder, but uh, I hope to inspire people to think twice before making a value judgment about others' diets and about... Um, about um, the circumstances that might lead somebody to make uh, quote unquote bad choices. Um, and uh, so to me, that that's kind of one of the most important parts of, of what I'm doing my research on and, and why I, I would quite like um, us to rethink slightly about what good food is as a category, especially when 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 children are, are implicated. Um, as I said before, uh, I found it quite fascinating that, you know, in, in, in the academic texts that I've been engaging with since doing my PhD, um, it's it's clear that there has been a shift in the way we, we talk about children and we recognize that they're agents and that, um, uh, you know, the way that we think about how they learn things has changed quite significantly throughout the years. Uh, and yet, you know, in policy, it's, it still seems like there is this absence uh, of, of understanding the child as, as this kind of more... Um, you know, as an agent, I guess, uh, and and the same goes for for this issue of food. Um, one of the things that I found quite fascinating about my research was this idea about the fussy eaters, um, and you know, it was it was fascinating because the fussy eater is um, is a child that needs to be uh, whose behavior needs to be shaped and controlled, and and it's 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 an identity. I think at least that's how I'm I'm framing it in my own research. It's an identity that adults are assigning to children who are not abiding by this um, this norm of what children should be eating. Um, I mean, it's it's quite a complex thing to unpack in such a short amount of time. But these are the kinds of things that I was I was kind of delving on, and uh, and that I think are important if we are to make, as you say, because ultimately, well, at least I think both of us are ultimately hoping that, you know, health status will improve um, in both the contexts that we've been researching. In, in your research, uh, what happens when we eat good food um, beyond what we've said about, you know, the the nutritional standards promoted by international agencies and state agencies. Yeah, thanks, Fran. Actually, wanted to pick up a little bit. I'll answer that question, but I'll also pick up on like the point about how you said um, uh, food preferences in mm. children are how they define the identity, but also um, in in like developing country, in any country or any society, the food culture and the preferences are quite important and what we, what I find in my own research is that over time over two almost two and a half decades period um, the food habits actually haven't really changed much in India so even though we're consuming less um, less cal like uh, less carbohydrate or like mm. rich food uh, broadly um, 
broadly the uh, the the dietary patterns haven't changed uh, in in India and uh, which is quite interesting to see and also we know that regionally there are patterns of consumption so this cultural preferences in terms of what food is how food is um, consumed in in India is also very interesting and how um, that affects like policy yeah. um, to um, and then also raises questions of food sovereignty, mm. which are quite interesting, which I don't really look in look at very deeply in my own research. But I know there's a very contentious topic in India, specifically around uh, um, beef eating, for example, yeah. or dairy consumption, or even yeah. for that matter, eggs. Yeah. For example, eggs are a very uh, rich and cheap source of protein, specifically for people who uh, live under the poverty line. Um, and the... In, in the school uh, feeding programs in India, which is uh, not universal at the moment, but but most states have some kind of um, school f- feeding program in India, um, there was a uh, there was a policy debate about introducing eggs in 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 diets. Uh, however, because of um, uh, because of um, um, state level policy. Uh, some states decided not to include eggs because of religious reasons. I see. Um, uh, because vegetarians sometimes do not eat eggs in India. However, um, then the the alternative argument was that it's a certain caste of people who don't eat eggs versus like the poor will always eat, um, you know, any source of protein because they need the, or the cheapest source of protein. So there's there's a lot of debate around what could in that sense what could be good food and what is not good food because eggs are supposed to uh, be un, not supposed to be good for children's souls or and that that's the argument that's been taken by the ones who don't who don't want to include eggs in 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 school feeding programs. Yeah. So a lot of you yeah, debate about like what kind of food is good and what kind of food is bad and then when you include all of these cultural preferences mm. um, around food sovereignty and political questions of food sovereignty with macro level economic policy is very interesting. The other thing also that I think about good food and bad food that's interesting um, separate from this cultural bit is that in uh, in many developing countries, specifically India and China, there's been focus on oh, if if the in middle income class increases, then they will they're likely to in, eat more meat and more beef or more chicken, and that's likely then will have an Im- environmental impact on on global economy. So um, <laughs> a lot of times, uh, the Chinese economy gets uh, gets the bad rep of oh because the Chinese have come out of poverty now, so they eat more meat, and that's bad for the economy yeah. because. Yeah. Um, more more methane and and climate change gases yes yeah yes exactly and i think that's uh, in terms of food sovereignty is a very difficult question to mm. ask because <clears throat> sorry uh, majority the the burden of undernutrition and malnutrition actually lies in china and india like the heaviest burden mm-hmm. uh, 40% of indian uh, under 5 children are stunted which is yeah. a huge proportion similar uh, numbers in in China so I find it difficult as uh, as you know even as an economist to say that oh these developing countries should not be consuming yeah yeah. 
in specifically in India, where the protein consumption anyways is very low, I think more than 80% of the Indian population households um, in in 2011-12 do not consume any meat and 20% don't consume any dairy still. So um, it's it, it becomes... There are no easy answers. Yeah, yeah. no, it's interesting because obviously I've also kind of looked at this link between um, low socioeconomic status and and, um, uh, poorer diets. And and it's interesting because obviously I'm in a context where there is poverty without scarcity, if that makes sense, right? We are in London, so we are exposed to so much uh, things that we, so many things that we can consume. And yet there's people that can't afford to, to buy food fresh food at the supermarket and then i mean in 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 london there's then the problem of the fish and chip shops and 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 uh, you know those are the kind of cheaper options anyway there's so much to unpack but i think perhaps we should move on to our closing remarks and um i think uh it would be nice to leave uh listeners thinking a bit about how they can take away all these very big um ideas that we've we've been discussing This myth that we choose what we consume needs to be burst a little bit. Um, And whilst I've been talking a lot about the government policy and the role of the state in like promoting good food or so-called good food, um, I'd also like to like leave the listeners with uh, to think a little bit about what the role of the private sector is. I think Mm. we always we we're confronted with these questions on a daily basis, but um, uh, just just to kind of remind ourselves that. the, what food is on the shelves is decided by actors who are who are who may not necessarily have uh, a healthy diet in their minds. Um, so yeah, just this idea of like um, that oh, individuals choose what they consume uh, is not necessarily the truth anymore. Yeah. And it's uh, people consume what they consume based on the choices available to them. Keeping in mind the price signals, keeping in mind what also goes into the food with, that is produced. Uh, giving that uh, with urbanization and globalization, we rely heavily on pa- already cooked food rather than cooking at home. So just just to link those like macro level things, but do the micro when in the end, what it, what do I eat on? Uh, uh, um, when I'm when I sit on my dinner yeah. table at night. Yeah, this is. Uh, I think I couldn't agree more. And actually, it makes me think of a quote by one of my supervisors, Rebecca Connell, in, in a book that she published last year, where she says, and specifically about families and and food, she says, uh, you know, policy assumptions uh, currently in place. Um, uh, portray parents as all of them willing and able to to prioritize nutrition and i think that is such a huge mistake uh, for all the reasons that we've been we've been discussing i think uh from from my perspective from my point of view i think that's also one of the takeaway points i would like listeners to take with them um i think uh another paradox perhaps that i i noticed whilst uh, conducting field work was that um there is this huge emphasis right now on early intervention and this idea that the habits that children learn in their uh, first few years of life are crucial and somehow um, um, indelible. Uh, they they will remain unscathed for life, which I think is a, a pretty um, contentious uh, assumption to make. Um, 
And in terms of in terms of this emphasis on early intervention, I've I've thought it was very good, you know, to promote healthy so-called healthy habits. But unfortunately, it's not the case, as we've been discussing, that everyone will have the same ability to make these healthy choices. So I think policy assumptions should really take this into consideration and listeners when when making uh, value judgments about people's eating habits. Um, so I think, yes, I, it was very interesting that yeah. an economist and anthropologist could agree, agree on, on, on something from two very diverse uh, points of views and, I think and we have data more in, sets. <laughs> I think we have more in common than, than, uh, than people assume. Yeah. Uh, and um, yeah, and just on that note, I think it's important. It's, it's good to see like how interdisciplinary, um, you know, looking at the same question with interdisciplinary angles is is, is quite interesting. Yeah. But um, there's a lot of interesting stuff in your own research. So keep going. You yeah. have another <laughs> <That's the idea. laughs> another year to go, and I'm sure like next year this time we'll be sitting again together, Hopefully. and you'll be uh, done with your thesis. Thank you very much. Well, thank you very much to Marish Tak and Francesca Vaki. Tune in again next time for uh, our next podcast in the series, What is Good Food?